Well, Lord, this is your word. And as always, we come to bow before it, realizing, Lord, that no separation can be made between you and your thoughts. These things are holy. These things are powerful. They're living and they're active. All that you have said, Lord, it is perfect and pure and able to give the knowledge that leads to salvation, able to equip us so that we might be fully equipped and ready for every good work. Lord, take your word by your spirit, illumine it and teach us, lead us forward and sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth and we're grateful for it. Help us this morning, we ask, to concentrate and plant these things deeply within us. And Lord, we pray that you'd enable us to be doers and not merely hearers who deceive ourselves and all of it for your glory in Christ's name, amen. Well, if you're in Acts 5 and you should be already, we come back to this very inspiring and instructive passage. I know for many of you, if you never heard the words COVID-19 again, it would be too soon. And I'll try to, to, to limit the number of times I say it over the next couple of weeks, but it really was a very trying and purifying time for the church. It was for me personally. I know it caused me to work through things and us as, as shepherds in this congregation to work through things uh, that we had never had to work through before. We'd never known that kind of governmental regulation uh, and, and overreach, really. We, we didn't even really know um, how, how to, to deal with things at the beginning. And we sort of had to work that out along the way. And, and I've said this many times, I'll say it again. Extend grace to Christians who are seeking to work these things out in order to honor the Lord. And uh, d- don't assume because somebody's response wasn't your response that they're compromisers and or that they're, 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 they're unloving. I mean, there's lots of judgmental type of stuff that can be thrown around in something in circumstances like this. Most churches, as you know, initially shut down for a brief time to flatten the curve, as we were told, and most of those churches have now reopened. Most of the members of those churches have re- returned. Sadly, some have not. And you've got to ask, if you remember back, what what were the motivations behind shuttering the church? What were the motivations for social distancing or for wearing masks? I think it's fair to say that love was a primary motivation on the part of most of the people I knew in the way they thought through these things. In the beginning, we didn't know how serious this might be. Love protects and churches sought to protect. Individuals sought to protect loved ones, relatives, the elderly, uh, the infirm. That was one motivation. There was another motivation, that is the motivation of fear. Fear of death, fear of reprisal from the governing authorities, right? We began thinking about the what-ifs of the sheriff's department or the police department would burst in here and, and begin to do things to us that we've only known to be done in other contexts and other countries. 
There was fear of what others might think who didn't agree with our position. There was in the heart of most Christians, I suppose, maybe the dominant motivation was a desire to honor Christ's commandments. Christ commanded us to love one another. Christ commanded us to honor the governing authorities. Christ has commanded us to be in subjection to those authorities and we're familiar with that from 1 Peter 2, Romans 13, the book of Titus. There were also an entire other set of commandments. We were called as we are to, to preach the word of God in season and out. We were called not to forsake the gathering and the assembling together as is the habit of some. We know that it is our Lord's will that we live out the one another's. Those are not merely things that we hold uh, as, as priorities in life, but we actually seek to live them out in devoted fellowship. And as I was thinking through some of these things this week, actually preparing for next, it occurred to me that all of these same questions at one level or another must have been in the minds of the disciples in the early church. How does one love God and love man in the midst of circumstances that are trying and and hot? How does one uh, respond to the edict of the king? Will, will I fear God or will we fear the king? What does it look like to honor those in authority and to be in subjection to them when their edicts contradict God's commandments? Which is worse, to compromise your call or to go to your death? These are questions that most of us had really never even thought of before in our country and in our context. But it's all there. It's all there in the first century. And the temperature there was far hotter than it has ever been for us. And so this passage really is very helpful in trying to think through the relationship between government and the church and beloved, I would, I would say this, if, if your desire is to just say, well, you know, COVID's in the rearview mirror, we're never going to deal with that kind of thing again. I, I don't think that's true. There's been a shift in our society. There's been a shift in the thinking of many. And COVID was a great revealer of some of our motivations. And COVID should also... It was a gift, frankly, from God in some ways because it, it helped us to think through these things in advance. I think if, it, if, if persecution had come hot and heavy, the church would have been surprised at how weak it really is in America. God has given us the opportunity really to begin to think through these things before they come in a new way, a fresh way, a more difficult way. And, and so we want to take this passage and allow it to help us as we move forward. We come really to what is the final message in this section, this elongated section, chapters three to five, really all deal with one flow, one story, one series of events. Next week, we'll devote the entire message to this 
issue of the relationship of the church and government, but right now we want to pick up where we left off last week. You remember the apostles are fresh out of jail and they are preaching again in the temple in direct contradiction to the commandment of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, you remember, is the Supreme Court of Israel. They were given authority by Rome to be the political and religious governing body of Israel. They were fundamentally responsible in Rome's eyes for keeping peace at the temple, and that peace is now being threatened. It was comprised of 70 men and the high priest. For a total of 71 men, it was made up of Pharisees and of Sadducees. These, these were the very men who had tried and condemned Christ and crucified him. And now the apostles stand before them. Peter's seen these men before. And this is a powerful and intimidating tribunal. They convened every day except the Sabbath to handle the day's business, and here they are gathered again at the temple. You remember I told you they sat in a semicircle, these 71 men, imposing men, academic men, hard men, hypocritical men, men who were determined to hang on to their power and to squash anyone who would threaten it. And they would set the accused in the midst of that semicircle to examine them. It was to these 71 men that Peter replied, whether it is right in the sight of God to hear you rather than God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. And Peter then and the church, after their release, went out and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak the word with confidence. And this led to a popular uprising. There were many, many, many people coming now to hear the apostles preach at Portico of, Sol uh, uh, of Solomon's, did I get that right? There we go. Solomon's portico, they are standing. You remember that's in the outer reaches of the temple. They're under a, a shaded area. It could, it could hold thousands of people. We have now tens of thousands of people coming as part of the church. They're bringing their sick. Miraculous things are happening at the hands of the apostles. And this Sanhedrin draws them in examines them and puts them in public jail. They're going to make, a, they're going to make a, an example out of them. And you remember they were miraculously delivered out of that jail by an angel who leads them out, and then that angel gave them instructions, a threefold commandment. And every one of these things was in direct opposition to what the Sanhedrin had required of the apostles. First of all, you're going to go right back to the temple where you were arrested. Secondly, you're going to stand before the people and you're going to speak. And then thirdly, you are going to speak the, the whole message of this life. You're going to preach the full gospel. And that's precisely what the apostles did. Early in the morning, in obedience to God's command, the apostles are preaching before the masses who are ascending to the temple for the morning prayers and the morning sacrifice. And at that very same meeting, or that very same time, a meeting has been called by the Sanhedrin 
Look down at verse 21. Notice in the second half, now when the high priest and those came with him, they called the Sanhedrin together, don't miss these words, even all the council of the sons of Israel. In other words, this is super serious. This wasn't a few of the Sanhedrin getting together. This wasn't a partial gathering of this august council of men. No, everybody needs to be there. Every seat needs to be filled. There is a critical issue before us. And so they send to the jail to bring the apostles in for arraignment and examination. And they find that the apostles... (laughs) are not there and they find that the doors are locked and that that the guards are on duty and they're alert, they're not sleeping. And that's where we pick up in verse 25 when someone, some anonymous person comes in and tells them that these men that they'd imprisoned were in the temple preaching the word to the people again. Look at verse 25. But someone came in and reported to them The men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. There was a long pause, I think, after that announcement. Imagine these men, religious men, yes, but men vested with all kinds of political power, They were not used to this kind of defiance. The last time they'd seen this kind of thing, well, it was Jesus. And Jesus' followers are like Jesus. And here Jesus' apostles, his sent ones, come in to stand before these men. And they're told they're not in the jail. And you've been there as a parent. I know you have. Susie and I recently got a puppy. We've been there a lot. And you find yourself saying dumb things to a dog like, I've told you a hundred times, stop chewing on my socks. And the dog is deliberate. There is nothing more irritating than deliberate disobedience. And so you've got to begin to get a sense of what's going on here. There's nothing funny about this in the minds of these men. They are openly, the apostles are obeying, disobeying every single detail and every fire-breathing threat that the Sanhedrin has made has been extinguished and utterly ignored. And the apostles now are proclaiming again the word of life to the masses. And we see in verse 26 this shift in momentum. If you're an athlete, you understand this. If you played team sports, whenever things were not going well, coach would talk about, we need to to stop the bleeding. We need a shift in momentum. Momentum shifts are very important. And the Sanhedrin has had the power. The Sanhedrin were the ones who were feared. The Sanhedrin had authority. But now the authorities are beginning to tiptoe around the apostles. Verse 26, then the captain went along with the officers. Of course he did. He wasn't going to let any more of this nonsense go on. 
And he proceeded to bring them, that is the apostles, back without violence, for they, the soldiers, the officers, the temple guard, were afraid of the people that they might be stoned. Do you see the shift? Now, the people never really liked the Sanhedrin much. For all the reasons that we've already mentioned about their hypocrisy and their authority and their arrogance and all of those things. But they had power and the people feared them. And the people are fully aware of all that's gone on with the apostles to this point, the the multiple arrests and and all the warnings and all the rest. And yet, here we see that it is, it is the Sanhedrin, it is, it is the temple police who are afraid now of the people. There's been a shift, and they are treading very carefully. Now, the fact that Luke tells us that all of this happened without violence really points us to three things. First of all, that violence commonly uh, uh, was accompanied arrest. This, this was not an era like ours of defunding the police, this was not an era where authorities were, were particularly concerned about giving rebels a few lumps. They didn't hesitate to use the baton. A few good whacks was always good for an attitude adjustment, and they didn't mind using it. Beyond that, secondly, we see that the power of the Sanhedrin, as I've said, is slipping away. This bold defiance coupled with the miraculous powers that the apostles are manifesting by God is diminishing the power of the Sanhedrin. They can feel it ebbing, and they want it back. And finally, beloved, I I would say this. The fact that Luke mentions that this was without violence tells us something about how Christ and his people respond when they are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. How easy would it have been for Peter and company to simply say to the crowds, they held the sway with them, how easy would it have been to to say, uh, these men here are trying to take us away. We, We know that you've been delighting in all that God is doing in your midst. They could have appealed for protection from the crowd. They, they could have appealed for, for some kind of rebellion. And yet they offer no resistance. They go willingly, just as they did in the previous arrests. And this is another parallel. Remember last week we talked about all the parallels that were being drawn in this passage between Jesus and his followers, and here's another one of them. There is no violence and no resistance to, to, to suffering and to persecution at the hands of others. There is a quiet confidence in the providence of God. And the apostles are brought before the Sanhedrin again, And it is an understatement to say they are not happy. (laughs) There's nothing low-key about this moment. In fact, if you look down at verse 33, just to tell you how serious it is, note that, that when the Sanhedrin heard this, they became furious and intended to kill them. So that's the level that this is at. This is a meeting in in which life or death will be determined. Verse 27. And when they had brought them, that is the apostles, they stood them before the Sanhedrin. 
And the high priest questioned, him, questioned them, saying, we strictly commanded you not to continue teaching in this name. Interesting. The high priest questioned them. Was that a question? You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Is that a question? They're statements. But there are questions. There are two questions that are, that are in there. And before we get to those two questions, it's interesting again to note that nothing is said about the great escape from prison. You remember there's irony in this because the Sadducees did not believe much in the supernatural. They denied the existence of angels. It was an angel who led them out. They denied the miraculous. It was an angel who opened, then locked the gate, and even set the alarm. So this is something that has got a measure of humor about it as we read. And the high priest here wants to throw his weight around and call the apostles to account and put them back on their heels. And so he says to them in his deepest voice, we strictly commanded you. Oh. Interesting, too, that they can't even bring themselves, the high priest, to mention Jesus' name, can they? We strictly commanded you not to continue teaching in this name. And you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. You think the the murder of Jesus might be haunting them? Again, British commentator in in, in typical British understated styles, F.F. Bruce says, they seem to have a curious reluctance to pronounce the name of Jesus. It's also interesting that one of the things that the high priest or the high priest t- try, tries to to pin on the apostles is is that that the apostles are trying to bring this man's blood upon us. Do you remember the, the, back in, in Matthew chapter 27 when it was these same men who shouted to Pilate, his blood be upon us and our children. You see, the, the, the two questions that, that the high priest really wants answered are these. Number one, the issue of the deliberate disobedience. We commanded you not to preach and you preached. We want an answer. And the second question is the trouble that Peter's preaching has brought upon the Sanhedrin. He keeps telling the people, does Peter, that, 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 that they're responsible for the death of Christ. Why are you doing this, in other words? And so Peter answers the first charge in verse 29. You want to know why we defied your order? Well, here it is. But Peter and the apostles answered and said, we must obey God rather than men. And what he's really trying to convey is we must obey God before men. And this we laid down last week as as a principle, this principle of the higher authority. It's 
It's very basic. It's, it's non-negotiable. When, when men command what God forbids or they forbid what God requires, we obey God always and without hesitation, immediately. There is no question and there is no wavering. You remember the three men by the name of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, better known to you, I'm sure, as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You remember them. They were required to fall down and worship before Nebuchadnezzar's golden statue, and they, they refused choosing death before idolatry. Let me just read to you a, a, a short segment This is from Daniel chapter 3 in the second part of verse 15 through 18. Nebuchadnezzar says to these men, but if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can save you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, We do not need to respond to you with an answer concerning this matter. I mean, do you really doubt what we're going to do? We don't even, you you know already, the lines are drawn and we've made our loyalties clear. He says, if it be so, our God whom we serve is able to save us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he will save us out of your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods and we will not worship the golden image that you have set up. Moments like those are defining moments. Have you ever taken a stand like that? Those are the kinds of moments, beloved, that our children need to see in us and that we need to see in one another. These these are strengthening moments. These are encouraging moments. Even now as we read through those things, you, you feel your chest go, yeah, and your head stands higher, doesn't it, as a believer? You're more determined now than you were one minute ago to stand loyal to Christ, are you not? How about we leave that legacy for those who come behind us? Are you ready? Those kinds of responses dissipate the fog of fear and they make us bold. Well, you remember that Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego had a friend by the name of Daniel. He too was told to obey the king's edict. He was told that he may not pray to Yahweh And Daniel throws open his windows and he gets himself right out there in public view and continues on just as he had, praying three times a day. Let me just read a couple of verses from Daniel chapter 6 and verse 7. We read the 
deceivers as they were trying to entrap Daniel. All the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects, the satraps, the high officials and the governors have counseled together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that everyone who seeks to make a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. And when you got cast into the lion's den, the only reason to make it 30 days is if the lions were full from the previous occupants. You know what I mean? You weren't going to go 30 days. Therefore, King Darius signed the written document, that is the injunction. Now, when Daniel, listen to this, knew that the written document was signed, he entered his house Now in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. Men, that'll put spiritual hair on your chest, as my father used to say. It is not Nebuchadnezzar who rules. And it is not Darius who has unlimited authority, nor is it Caesar. It is God. And when Caesar says, you may not gather to worship, we will gather to worship. Because we have been told we are not to forsake the assembling together as is the habit of some We've been given commandments to preach the word in season and out. We've been called to the one another commandments. Apostasy is real. People fall away. We want to meet because we've been called to meet, and therefore we will meet. And when Caesar says, you're forbidden to sing, Christ's people will defy that mandate, and they will sing all the louder to their God because we've been commanded to do it. The psalmist writes, sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the holy ones. When the civil government requires us to declare ultimate allegiance and obedience to them, we cannot bow. Why? Because we have another authority, a greater authority, a higher authority. There's already someone who occupies that place and who possesses all authority. COVID should have taught us that. We should cling to that. That principle, we should own it. And we should be committed that come what may, we will gather because God has called us to. And we will sing out of obedience to our king. No one can take that from you. And I understand that it puts you on the horns of a dilemma because if we do it, we may be punished, but that's okay. We'll talk about that more next week. You're going to see that very thing happen even in our passage. You see, the problem is the Sanhedrin has assumed an authority they do not rightfully possess. They wanted one thing. God had commanded another. And Peter and the apostles must obey God rather than man. And the very thing that Peter has been forbidden to speak Peter goes right back to speaking, right in their faces. There's a second charge, and that is that Peter keeps telling them they're responsible. For the death of Christ, look at verse 30. The God of our fathers 
raised up Jesus. Oh, did you sternly command me not to preach in the name of Christ? The God of our fathers raised up Jesus. Whom you put to death by hanging him on a tree. This one God exalted to his right hand as a leader and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God gave to those who obey him. This is the fourth time in five chapters that we have the content of Peter's preaching. And I keep pointing it out because it's in there by God's will and his inspiration, and it's because he wants us to understand this and to anchor it in our own hearts. Here is the content of the gospel that Jesus authorized and commanded us to preach. What is it again? Right out of Luke 24, 45 to 49, you remember that. This is before Jesus was ascended. He said, look, here's what you're going to preach, that the Christ would suffer and that he would be raised on the third day, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in my name, beginning in Jerusalem, and then to Judea, and even out into the uttermost parts of the earth. This is exactly what Peter preaches yet again. He's got a one-track message. Friends, it will do us well to, to get that outline memorized and get it on the tip of our tongues because we too are witnesses of these things. Every time that Peter preaches, he keeps pointing forward and saying, you, in some cases, Israel, are responsible for crucifying your Messiah. And we've been over this before. The Romans were responsible, and frankly, you and I were responsible for the crucifixion of Christ. Were we not? Was it not our sins? But here the audience is Israel and Peter keeps pressing this home that the death of Christ is on Israel and it is on these men in particular. He's just relentless about it. And Christ's blood does indeed stain the hands of these 71 men. They had crucified the Lord of glory And in fact, when when Peter says this one, God exalted to his right hand as a leader and a savior, Peter is essentially looking at him and saying, look, you are opposing the God of Israel in these things. You're on the wrong side of this. In fact, the one that God exalted to his right hand, you hung on a tree. Now that is loaded language. That is triggering terminology, if you will. Deuteronomy 21, we saw this some months ago, but you'll remember that that text teaches that cursed of God is everyone who's hanged on a tree. These men considered Jesus accursed of God. These men thought he was the one who was smitten and afflicted of God. And the fact is Jesus did bear a curse for our sins, didn't he? not ones that he committed, but the ones we committed. But he is the anointed one, the beloved son. He is the Lord Jesus Christ exalted to the right hand and honored by God. These guys couldn't be any further from the truth. They were more than wrong. They were were evil 
they were wicked. There is no greater sin than they that they could have committed, and yet here again is God appealing to them once again by the mouth of, the, of, of Peter uh, to repent, to obey the gospel, to turn to Christ, to receive the Holy Spirit, to have their sins forgiven. Once again, the gospel is preached to these men, and they harden. They're always arguing. They're always hardening. So intense was the conviction that it stirred them to murderous intent, verse 33. But when they heard this, you see, that that was the trigger. That was enough for them. This idea that they were God's opponents or that they, they were somehow on the wrong side of all of this, that was enough. Enough defiance. It says they became furious. That word means torn through, cut to the quick. They were infuriated. They were enraged. And they intended to kill them. That same word is used, by the way, in Acts 7.54 that they became furious in their hearts and began gnashing their teeth at Stephen. And you remember how all that panned out. They're breathing death threats. As far as they were concerned, it was time for these apostles to meet the same end as their leader and savior. Envy and pride had driven these men all the way to the brink of bloodshed once again. And it was then that one of their number, a Pharisee by the name of Gamaliel, spoke up and brought some sanity to all the, all the fury. You remember Gamaliel? He was, he was the one who educated Saul, the apostle Paul. Gamaliel was a famous teacher. He was beloved. He was highly regarded And here he proves to be a man of moderation in the midst of all of this testosterone and masculine passion. Verse 34, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. And he said to them, that is to the Sanhedrin, still gathered, Men of Israel, take care what you propose to do to these men. For some time ago, Thutius rose up claiming to be somebody and a group of about 400 men joined up with him, but he was killed. And all who were following him were dispersed and came to nothing. And after this, a man, Judas the Galilean, that's not the Judas you know, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away people after him. He too perished, and all those who were following him were scattered. The Jewish historian Josephus tells us that there were, quote, innumerable tumults and insurrections that arose in Judea following the death of Herod the Great. And Gamaliel here points to two of them. Thutius was one of them. He led an uprising. We don't really know much, if anything, about this man other than he led an insurrection and he was killed by the Romans and that insurgency withered. And then he raises this man, Judas the Galilean. And again, he is not the disciple who betrayed Jesus. This man is is well-known and in the pages of history as having led a, a nationalist revolt against Rome. He, he, he believed, this was in AD 6, he contended that it was high treason for any Jew to pay tribute to a pagan ruler. And so 
Rome didn't take revolts lightly and Rome killed him and with him the movement died. And you can see the line of Gamaliel's argumentation here. He says, you know, Thutius, he stood up, he did his deal and all who followed him, it all fell off once he died. And then there was Judas. You remember that guy, the Galilean. He led a revolt and he and his followers also passed off the scene. Many of them were killed and the movement died. And now here is this man, Jesus, and yes, he's led a movement, but we took care of him, remember? And so this, this little burst of fervency among his followers, he, you don't need to sweat that. They're enthusiastic, but you don't need to make too much of it. Let, let, let's not get carried away. I'll tell you what, you make martyrs of these men, and then we may really have a, a populist uprising. We may really have trouble so he comes to his conclusion in verse 38. So in the present case, I also say to you, stay away from these men. You need to take this very carefully. And let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. Or you may even be found fighting against God. That's a prophetic statement, by the way. We're still here. Christ is building his church, and the gates of Hades cannot stand against it. This is one of Luke's primary thrusts, remember? This is the acts of, of, of the Holy Spirit through his apostles. As this, the, 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 the gospel train presses forward and the kingdom of God is increasingly being realized in their midst, Jesus is no dead insurrectionist. Jesus is alive and he is still working from the right hand of the Father. Gamaliel says, listen, man, a little more thinking and a lot less passion. God is sovereign and God is omnipotent and time will tell whether this thing is of God or if it is of, of man. And if it's of man, well, then it will, it will simply fizzle out. But if it is of God, then listen, resistance is futile. Now, it'd be easy to look at that and go, you know, maybe, maybe Gamaliel's a Christian in waiting. Maybe he's like Nicodemus. He's not quite there, but perhaps. And yet, we, we need to be cautious about elevating this council too much. He certainly here has a significant influence over the council, he would have been very well received by the people who've been listening to the apostles preaching, and so he, he's, he's a benefit to be sure. And the apostles will make it through the night because of him in all likelihood. But you also need to remember that this man was an, an elite Old Testament scholar. This man knew all those prophecies that we looked at at Christmas. This man had been listening. He, he had seen Jesus in person. He had, in all likelihood, heard Jesus preach. He had been, in all likelihood, at the, the mock trials, the, the rigged trials of Jesus. He had seen the miracles that the apostles were performing, and really what he should have done is submitted to the truth of what was being preached. He doesn't have anything to say about the veracity of all that Peter has been teaching. Instead, he simply looks at this thing from kind of a pragmatic vantage point 
And he says, men, if you want to hang on to our positions of power, then what we need to do is just back it down a few, shift, shift, shift down a few gears and slow this thing down. He tells them, don't act rashly. Verse 40 tells us that they followed his advice. Then the text says, and after calling the apostles in, have you ever thought? I mean, Luke gives us insight to what was happening in the chamber and with the Sanhedrin, but what was the discussion like outside? What was going on in the minds of the apostles? Were they fearful? I think there may have been an element of that. As one wise pastor pointed out to me, you only die once. And anytime you go through something for the first time, there's, there's bound to be some apprehension. Do you think they were wrestling with this? Is, is this all worth it? Let me ask you, did they have wives and kids at home? You think they were in prayer? You think they may have been strengthening one another? I have no doubt, given the Apostle Paul's example, that they were probably preaching the gospel to the guards who were watching. Beloved, don't don't allow a text like this, familiar as it is to you, somehow to sort of just through your head and, and yeah, those were the apostles and that was back then. These things are written for us and for our instruction. The apostles did a lot of stuff Luke didn't even write down, but he wrote this down for us. That we might think about these things and meditate on these things and put, put our shoes in the apostles' sandals and, and our feet in the apostles' sandals and, and, and think through this a little bit Well, they call these men in, and they had decided to give them a good beating. They commanded them to stop again, <laughs> like the threatening, repeating parent. One, right? Two, they're on four. And, 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 and so they're going to command them again not to speak in the name of Jesus right after Peter had just spoken to them in the name of Jesus. And then they released them. But they decided to leave them with some scars this time. This word beating refers to a flogging or a whipping. There was a a three-stranded strap of cowhide that they would use that were long straps and they would... They would strike the front of the body and then the back of the body and these lashes would wrap around and then they were, they were pulled off so that the back and the chest became flayed and swollen and bloody. These guys quite literally had blood on their jerseys. They now bore the marks of their Savior. In all likelihood, we're not told here, but this was 40 lashes minus one as the law allowed. 
That's precisely what happened to the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 25 to 23, Paul tells us that he suffered, quote, beatings without number. Again, don't let these words just flow over your head. Beatings without number in frequent danger of death five times, five times. I received from the Jews 40 lashes, less one. These men now bear in their bodies the stigmata. We get the word stigma from it. They were branded with a stigma. When they went down to the Mediterranean for a day at the beach and they took off their shirts, people wondered, what what did you do? They had the brand marks and the scars of their Messiah. The text tells us that they went on their way from the presence of the Sanhedrin rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for the name. Rejoicing that they had been considered worthy. Considered worthy by who? Who considered them worthy? You're right. You can say it. Who? God. They had the approval of God. Doesn't matter what man thinks. These stripes are evidence. We pin a purple heart on people in this country who suffer injury at war. These stripes on my body are evidence of the approbation of God on my life. Now, to the best of my knowledge, no one in this room has been struck for Christ's sake. Perhaps you have, and we need to hear it. But I do want to ask you this. Is this the way you think when you get that condescending smirk from somebody that you speak of Christ about? Do you say in your soul, do you go back to your car with joy in your heart? God is pleased. I bear the reproach of Christ. And when you face the rejection and the shame you endure for identifying yourself with Christ, walking like Christ, living like the light so that it impacts this dark world. Do you slump back to your car saying, man, this never works? Or do you stride back to your car saying, Lord, you told me, you have told me this is the way it was going to be. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. There will be persecution for all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus. Blessed are you when people revile you and say all kinds of evil things about you on account of me. Beloved, we must take these things to heart and we should see them in the lives of these men. 
And it ought to move us to be all the more committed to strive forth with greater courage, not slink away in cowardice. Oh, let it motivate us. And may we, like them, look at a situation and say, you know what, I'm terrified, but I will choose to enter into that suffering because it pleases Christ whether anyone is converted or not. It pleases when the gospel is preached and Christ is upheld and the sinner is redeemed. Oh, that glorifies God for his redeeming power. But it glorifies Christ when the gospel is preached and his messenger and his message are rejected. And the unbeliever walks hardened in heart all the way to hell because God will not be mocked and his justice will be upheld. And there will be wrath and indignation for everyone who rejects Christ. You see, there's glory when both happen. You're successful in the eyes of God either way. God is honored to save many through the preaching of Peter and his apostolic crowd, but he is also honored when they are shamed for his name. This rejoicing is a perfect participle. What that means is that this was not some brief emotional reaction. They were rejoicing with a continual rejoicing. It just washed over them as they walked together from the council. Bloodstained shirts, walking along together, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy by God to suffer for the name of Christ. Daryl Bach writes this, in a shame-honor-oriented society, To be dishonored normally would be considered shameful. The phrase counted worthy to suffer dishonor is an oxymoron. A dishonor that is a cause for joy. The leaders beat them to produce shame. They hope that shame might function as a deterrent and stop their preaching. But you know what? It didn't, did it? This might sound like a funny question, but can I ask you, do you want more joy in your life? Joy comes with risk. Joy comes with obedience. Joy comes by living a life that shines the light of Christ, walking in a manner worthy of your calling, and joy comes by opening your mouth and speaking that which you're terrified to speak. But know this, that the end result of speaking will be a multiplying of your joy. Do you want joy? Preach Christ. Bear testimony for Jesus. Rejoice and be glad, says Jesus, when this kind of thing happens to you. So their attempt to douse the flame only poured fuel on it. Let's look very quickly. Verse 42, and every day... Don't miss these words. He just piles them up. Not some days, not occasionally. Every day in the temple, yes, there where they were forbidden to preach, and from house to house, they did it in the temple, they did it in the streets, they did it in the houses. They just went everywhere declaring the glory of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. They did not 
cease teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. Wow. They didn't even break stride. They just kept at it. All the intimidation and the jail time and the prohibitions and the strict warnings and the lashings did nothing to derail them, nothing. And all of that leaves us then with this question of civil disobedience. And as I said, we, we, will, we will take it up next week and perhaps the week after, I don't know when we'll stop talking about it, but I think this is a, a good place to pull over and, and think through this a little bit because these men understood some things that I think I have not always understood. And I think probably most of us in an American context have not really had to grapple with. How was it that they ended up so confident in repeatedly defying the governing authorities They preached and were forbidden, to which their response was to preach, and then they were forbidden, to which their response was to preach, and then they were forbidden and whipped, to which their response was to preach. Wow. I can hear all kinds of stuff. Do you think the Lord's closing a door for us men? I think we should go underground. You know, Peter, we could do this house to house and the whole temple thing. Let's tone this down. Peter, do you have to quit, keep pointing at them when you say you crucified them? <laughs> I mean, that's really an issue for the Sanhedrin. It would be better if you just used the rhetorical we. The, you know, we did some things to Jesus that maybe we shouldn't have done. No, beloved, they did not cease teaching and proclaiming the good news, and it is good news, that Jesus Christ gave his life for sinners, bearing the infinite wrath of God which they deserved in his own body, that we might have the forgiveness of sins, and living a life that was righteous, that fulfilled the law in every respect. He was truly, morally perfect in every way, shape, or form without sin. And he gives that righteous qualification to all who hope in him so that we might dwell eternally with him in heaven and enjoy the blessings of love and fellowship and harmony. And it, it's beyond description. All of that is good news for humble sinners who will acknowledge their need and come to Christ and bow the knee. And so the question arises, you know, what about the clear teaching in the Bible to honor civil authority and to submit to them, to subject yourself to them? We read about it in Romans. We read about it in 1 Peter. Were the apostles right to be so uppity? Well, you already know my answer to that question anyway. God was pleased with their defiance. Thinking about Peter, you know, he had taken a stand to oppose authority in the past, hadn't he, with a sword in his hand. And Jesus gave him a severe rebuke. Why was this time different? 
What makes it different? I'll say this, Peter and the apostles handled this beautifully, perfectly. And there's so much to be learned by their example and I look forward to drawing back on this. And as I said earlier, history, both recent and ancient, proves that this relationship between church and state can be very, very trying. Many people have lost their lives because of it. And thankfully, God has not left us without his all-sufficient word and clear instruction in it. So I hope you'll anticipate being here next week when we'll consider that relationship more closely. Let's pray as the music team comes forward. Father, we thank you for this word of encouragement. We thank you for these men who were filled with the Holy Spirit, made strong by the Spirit of God, confident in the word of God, eager to preach, bold enough to stand before the high power, highest power in the land who, who easily could have taken their lives. Lord, we, we look at this and we confess that we are weak that we need your help. I do pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us, that our back would be straighter and our legs firmer and our voices louder. And Lord, that you would use our lives as a testimony to your grace, that we would not, with the Apostle Paul, that we would not be ashamed of the gospel, knowing that it is the power that you utilize to save both Jew and Gentile alike. Lord, help us to live with an abandoned obedience that is without fear. Help us, Lord, to stride forward in doing what's right and all of it again for your glory, not ours, for your pleasure, that you might be honored and, Lord, that we might bring you glory forever and ever. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, who is able to keep you from stumbling... And to make you to stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. The Lord bless you.